0: Hey, Matt Techman here from Elucidations. Before we get going today, I just thought I'd ask if you're a fan of the show to maybe go to our iTunes page and leave a rating and or review, and that way more people can discover it. All right, thanks. Two Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman.
1: And I'm Francie Russell.
0: With us today is Stephen Engstrom, professor of philosophy at the University of Pittsburgh, and he's here to discuss the categorical imperative. Stephen Engstrom, welcome.
2: It's very nice to be here.
0: The categorical imperative was sort of the centerpiece of the moral philosophy of Immanuel Kant. Kant thought that this was the most basic principle from which all of the rest of ethics was derived. What is the categorical imperative exactly? What does that say?
2: Well, it's um, a term that Kant uses to characterize the single principle of morality which he sets out in his practical philosophy. He speaks of a categorical imperative specifically to mark certain features of this fundamental principle. It's an imperative, he says, meaning thereby that it consists in a kind of command to us as moral persons, a command that's issued by reason. Um, He takes the principle of morality to be a principle of reason. And he calls this command or this imperative categorical to indicate that the requirement that it consists in is not conditional or dependent upon any special interests or objectives that this or that person might happen to have. It's a command that pertains to us all simply in virtue of being persons or beings who have some share in the capacity of reason. That's what the phrase is intended to signify.
0: Okay, so it's called imperative because it's a rule for us to follow, and we're commanded to do it. It's something we have to follow. And it's called categorical because it applies equally to everybody in different circumstances. It's not like it just sometimes applies and sometimes it doesn't. You know, It's not like accidental events will determine whether or not it's a rule we should follow. No, it's a rule we always
2: should follow, and we all should always follow it. Right. What does this rule tell us to do? Well, I suppose in... A word you might say, it tells us to live and to act in accordance with reason. Uh, It is a rational requirement, as Kant understands it, and so it's um, a prescription that directs us to order our lives in accordance with certain conditions that we at least implicitly recognize are conditions of being a rational person or a reasonable person.
1: So it's not immediately intuitive how reason could either be a source of a command or tell us about anything we should do in the world. And then how could it tell us something about ethics? So can you tell us a bit more about what Kant thought reason was?
2: Very good question. Um, One of the distinctive features of Kant's understanding of morality lies in his, I think, the way in which he sees reason as underlying this moral principle or as being the source of it. We tend today to think of morality as concerned with action, what we ought to do, a set of requirements. But Kant is thinking of morality as consisting in certain, well, requirements, but which emanate ultimately from a capacity we have, which he calls reason, which has a kind of application in contexts uh, which are quite distinct from what we think of as moral contexts in the first instance so for instance reason plays a role in our investigation of nature we use reason to form hypotheses about how the world works to discover laws that govern the phenomena that we're investigating in the natural world and Kant thinks of this same capacity that we're using to understand the world we live in as playing a role in directing how we ourselves should live, and it's in, in the form of these imperatives or commands that um, he spells out what that requirement is. So to give you just a quick description of what I take to be two principal factors in the, um, the requirements of reason that apply both in our investigation use of reason to investigate nature and also in practical matters. Let me just distinguish two different kinds of universality in our thinking or judging. Kant contrasts a kind of requirement that is built into our understanding of what rational knowledge is, um, according to which if we really know something by means of our reason, then it's got to be something that's in some way in conformity with law. So when we investigate the natural world, trying to understand what orders it, how it's structured, find the explanations for the phenomena, it's really reason, he thinks, that's guiding us in a search for general principles or laws according to which the phenomena occur. And that kind of generality or universality, he will speak of as an objective universality. It's a universality that pertains to the objects that we think of as standing under laws. So all things that fit a certain description will have to behave in a certain way. Um, for example, all events must have a cause. That would be an example of a kind of universality. It extends across all events in the natural world, and it says of them that they all have causes. So there's a kind of objective universality that registers the one of the two requirements that reason express the rationality of our investigation of nature. The other sort of requirement is on the subjective side. And this requirement, again, is a requirement of universality. The thought here is that if I actually know something about the natural world, then it ought to be possible for any other subject who is capable of using reason to know the natural world to agree with me in my judgment provided that they are properly positioned to have access to the object that i'm making my judgment about provided that their rational capacities are not somehow impaired so there's a kind of implicit requirement that my judgments be such as could be agreed with by everyone By all knowers. So we have two different kinds of universality then that are implicit in rational cognition or rational knowledge of the natural world. An objective kind of universality that covers the objects we know and a subjective universality that embraces all of the possible knowers. And then what Kant does in his practical philosophy is carry these two requirements over and um, interpret our moral obligations in accordance with them or as reflecting these two requirements.
1: It sounds like objective universality means that if one person does an action in a certain circumstance everybody should do the same action. It's objectively universal. And subjective universality means that we'd all agree with it. There'd be no moral disagreement about what the right thing to do was. How do these two forms of universality tell me anything about what it means to be a good person?
2: Well Kant thinks of these two forms of universality as expressing two ways in which we are related to the basic law or requirements of reason. I described just a moment ago the way in which rational knowledge of nature involves these two kinds of universality. What's striking in the case of the practical use of reason is that these two sorts of universality are going to capture exactly the same individuals or subjects. When I'm investigating nature, the judgments I make about nature concern the objects I'm thinking about, for example, events. Um, And the subjects, with respect to my knowledge as universal, are candidate knowers, um, not events, but people. In the practical case, though, for reasons that we can maybe go into if you'd like, but um, I'll just state the thought, In the practical case, the two sorts of universality coincide non-accidentally or essentially um, because the very beings about who we're judging in our practical thinking are the sorts of beings who are candidates or qualified to have knowledge about how we should act and live our lives. And so when we think about what we ought to do, Kant's claiming, we need to be attentive to not only whether the action that we're contemplating um, is one that everyone could follow or do together, but also whether the judgment we're making is one that everyone could agree upon. So there are two different ways in which people stand to these laws or ways of acting that we might consider as candidate ways of living or that we might propose to act in accordance with. On the one hand, we have to think of these ways of acting that we're considering undertaking as such that everyone could act in the same way. And we also have to think about whether everyone could agree upon the act. they're not quite the same thing. They're closely, I mean, they may seem closely related, but they're different thoughts. It's one thing to be under a law, and it's another thing to be agreeing with a law or affirming it or, as Kant will sometimes say, legislating, having a kind of say-so in, whether the law applies or not. It's a kind of two-sided relation in which we stand to these laws that's distinctive about the way in which practical laws bear on ourselves. Okay,
0: so Kant formulates this categorical imperative, the basic principle behind all of ethics, in a couple different ways. He has sort of three different definitions he gives it. And the one that a lot of philosophers have really focused on is sometimes called the formula of universal law. Yeah, so based on what we've been saying so far, it sounds like the idea here is, suppose I'm trying to figure out whatever, whether to give my mom a ride home from the airport, or whether to give money to the poor, or you know I'm involved in some decision about what to do in my life. The thing to do is think about, could anybody who is in my situation do the thing that I'm considering doing, and would everybody in my situation agree that the thing I'm considering doing is the thing to do? So. What helps me figure out what to do has both the subjective and objective dimensions.
2: Yeah, that's the thought. I think that the way Kant understands practical knowledge um, as rational knowledge, he thinks of it in a kind of top-down sort of way, so that in something like the way in which in a system of scientific knowledge, um, such as we might have in Euclidean geometry or some other science, uh, we'll have certain general principles that provide starting points for our knowledge and will try to understand special cases underneath the general principles. And he thinks of practical knowledge as rational knowledge and therefore as having the same kind of structure, a kind of top-down order. So when he thinks about the way in which reason gives its command to us, he'll think about it as applying in the first instance to the most general acts of judging or practical thinking that we engage in. So often, if you read his works, you'll see him speaking about happiness, um, which he takes to be a very fundamental object of interest for any human being. It's, in fact, the most fundamental natural object of concern for any finite or human person. It's, I think, easiest to think about how his principle applies by considering very general interests or ends that we set for ourselves relating to our own happiness. So he'll argue that it's part of our nature as beings with needs, rational animals, that we set, have some conception of our own good, our own happiness as our basic end. And in the first instance, he's really thinking about how we regard our end of happiness in relation to others. That's kind of the fundamental level at which his thinking is in the first instance directed. So I think it's maybe most easiest to see how the categorical imperative applies by starting with very simple basic views we have about our own happiness, how important it is relative to the happiness of others. And it's here we can see how the two kinds of universality really kind of get a grip or make a difference. If I think of my happiness as an end that matters for me and judge it to be something good, what the categorical imperative will require in virtue of the objective universality of it is that I also regard others' happiness as likewise good. And in a similar way, it'll require on the subjective side that I be able to satisfy myself that others could agree with my own judgment placing importance on my own happiness. Now, described in that way, it seems straightforward enough, but a lot will depend on what kind of content is included in what I think my happiness to consist in. If if the ends that I set for myself include, say, achieving certain kinds of relations of power or control over other people, if what I would really like in life is to have a kind of control over other people, then the judgment will run afoul of these rational requirements because other people, if I try to kind of conceive of a world in which others act on that same judgment, I'll be forced to try to, you know, make coherent the idea of a world in which everyone is trying to get the better of everybody else. And it seems as though, and Kant argues that it is so, in this kind of scenario, we can't really coherently think of such a world where I'm succeeding in fulfilling my wish to be in a position of superiority over others, controlling how they live to the extent that I can, and others are doing the same to me in turn. There seems to be a kind of a conflict between our ends that the requirement that we um, of objective universality brings to the fore.
0: It sounds like this formula of universal law that we've been discussing, you know, it seems very altruistic, which is to say it seems like it places an emphasis on not just looking out for yourself, but looking out for other people as well. And the last remark you just made makes it sound like, on Kant's view, sort of selfish behavior is not just wrong, but like illogical or self-contradictory. But what exactly is self-contradictory about being selfish?
2: Ah, good point. The way Kant illustrates the application of this principle does suggest that if you will a certain action or if you choose to act in a certain way that conflicts with a rational requirement, you end up, as he will say, contradicting yourself or falling into some kind of contradiction. And that can make it sound as though there's some kind of rank incoherence involved in wrongful action. In fact, that's not what he himself thinks. And we need to, I think, distinguish between Sheer inconsistency of the sort that's involved in thinking in violation of, say, the laws of logic, the law of non contradiction, contradicting oneself. It's not quite like that, but it's a kind of inconsistency that arises if you uh, attempt to, cons- well, as he will put it, will your maxim or your action as a universal law. So there's nothing, he says explicitly, there's nothing inconsistent about willing to lie to somebody or willing to get the better of somebody else. But there is an inconsistency, he thinks, that arises if I try to will or to judge um, or affirm. Everybody's doing that. So the, the inconsistency only arises when I think by the lights of reason, so to speak. As long as I'm just focused on what I'm after, what I want to do, there's no contradiction at all.
0: So suppose I'm a radical libertarian, not in the metaphysical sense, in the political sense. So, suppose I think that the most important thing a person should respect in their life and their decision making is their own benefit, and it's my view that that applies generally, that everybody should do this. Everybody should just look out for number one. Where, according to Kant, have I, have I contradicted myself?
2: Well, Kant himself describes the case of an individual who resembles the libertarian you were just describing yourself someone, he says, for whom things are going well and who looks and sees other people struggling with hardships and decides not to lift a finger to help them. His idea is let everybody live and pursue their own happiness and let the chips fall where they may. Kant thinks of this way of thinking as quite understandable. Indeed, he doesn't say this, but I think he would recognize many people think that it's the way we actually think and that the world runs um, basically on that kind of principle. That's how the world works, some people might say. So it's a very familiar way of thinking and uh, Kant himself says that there's no explicit contradiction that results if we try to conceive of a world in which everyone is acting in this way. So there's a sense in which there isn't a contradiction. But Kant does argue that such an individual couldn't will to be part of this world that is a world in which everyone is acting in this way and there's a you know question Well, in what sense can't this be willed some argue that in fact you can perfectly will, will well will to be in such a world you might in a sort of stoical way be prepared to go down um, without being helped by others if that's what fate requires but Kant thinks that if we're really talking about persons, human beings who have needs that are based in their animal makeup, although this way of thinking might come easily as long as things are going well, when push comes to shove, when things aren't going so well, one's in a better position to appreciate one's needs as a finite or limited um, vulnerable human being. And I think he regards it as, in fact, rational in such a case to wish to be helped by others if one has serious needs to you know maintain keep going or for one's own survival and so he thinks that someone who might speak this way talk that talk if they reflect kind of step out of their libertarian ideology on what it would be like to be in the position of the people of the people that they need their help or that they don't care to help they will be able to appreciate that they couldn't will to be part of such a world. And as I'm understanding this categorical imperative with the two different kinds of universality that are implicated in the, in the requirement, we can spell the point out that the person couldn't will to be in such a world by thinking about the problem that arises when we think of the subjective universality requirement. That is, I think that what he is pointing our attention toward here is that when you're in that kind of a situation should you fall into it you would yourself expect others to regard your own happiness your own survival perhaps as something good at least to the point of regarding it as important to help further if they can and that's a kind of implicit registering of the subjective universality of the claim one makes about the value of one's own happiness. When one reflects upon what it's like to be in that kind of a situation where one needs help, one can appreciate that one views one's happiness in such a way that one expects others to also recognize one's happiness as uh, having some value or worth. And so what I think Kant is drawing on when he considers this character is that we as persons think of our happiness as something that's good and that we know to be good and that therefore others should recognize as good also because of the subjective universality of the judgments and claims we make practically. But if they should recognize the goodness of our happiness, then, he says, we're under an obligation to suppose that we should recognize their happiness to be good also. If we suppose that they have implicated um, in our own judgments about the value of our happiness to the extent that we think that they should agree with us, then we're sort of committed to supposing that when they make similar judgments about their happiness we should agree with them. So this kind of case turns more directly on the subjective requirement of subjective universality of practical judgment and practical cognition or knowing, whereas the example we considered earlier, I focus more on the objective side, that's a somewhat long-winded answer, but that's how I think he under- handles the case of the um, the person who, yeah, as you put it, is a kind of a libertarian, a moral libertarian.
1: I found that answer helpful because I think it helps show that Kant is not of the mind that moral life is somehow fully separable from our vulnerabilities, our concrete relationships with others, that there might even be limitations to what we can rationally want in light of those vulnerabilities and in light of our social mode of life. I wonder if you could talk about a case that's sort of the inverse of the one we just imagined. What if I find myself in a corrupt state and I make what I think is a moral judgment that's correct and I find no subjective agreement with my fellows? I meet complete disagreement. Should this be something that impacts my moral judgment at all? How much should the judgments of my fellow citizens inform my own?
2: That's a fine question. I'd, here's a thought or two about it. This requirement of subjective universality, the, the requirement that we be able to agree in our judgments about how we should live, I think runs very deep in Kant and it plays out in a variety of ways that maybe aren't immediately obvious from the description of it that I've given so far. This categorical imperative that we've been discussing up till now is one that Kant illustrates with various examples and they're meant to bring to light the way in which we can in reflection scrutinize or criticize our own ways of thinking by asking, you know, well what if everyone acted according to this plan of mine? But there's a lot more to practical life than just individuals sitting around reflecting on by themselves whether others could agree with the way of acting they're proposing or whether everyone could follow this kind of plan or, or maxim, as he calls it. There's a lot more than that. After all, many of the problems of practical life are problems that involve coordinating our actions and just sorting out how we're going to live together. And none of us are able to kind of figure out how that should go by ourselves. We have to communicate with one another, work out together how we're going to live together. And at this stage of the game, just sitting around and reflecting isn't going to get us anywhere. We need to have a kind of attitude towards one another that will make us good collaborative co-deliberators about how we should live together. But there's the actual business of reaching agreement. and. This requirement of universal agreement is still in operation now, but it's actually in play in our back and forth, our co-deliberation about how we should live together. And so if you find yourself in a situation where everyone around you seems to disagree with you, that's not a good place to be. And you've got to work it out with your fellows one way or another. Maybe it will mean you need to leave. Maybe you'll need to just make do as best you can. But in the first instance, there should be some effort on the part of you and your fellows, I take it, to see whether you can reach some kind of agreement. I mean, the fact that you're outnumbered does tend to make it hard for you to persuade everybody um, that (laughs) the way you're seeing things is uh, maybe the way they should see things too, but um, that's the beginning of a conversation. But it's kind of a requirement that we work these things out as rational, as persons. Uh, that brings into view that there's a lot more to you know being a good person than just sitting alone in your ethical armchair asking whether everyone could follow the maxim or the rule of, of action that you are contemplating.
1: Yeah, that's helpful and that really seems to place Kant's moral philosophy in the context of his enlightenment thought where he thought that part of what human life is about is coming to a kind of agreement about how we want to live, not based on being governed by anybody else, not based on following some sort of leader's rules, but on really reflecting together about how we want best to live.
2: Absolutely. That's very much the spirit of his ethics.
0: So it's been quite some time since Kant was around. But even today, Kant's position is considered one of the major positions that you can take in ethics today. But is Kant's view just of historical interest because of its influence, uh, or is there some, do you think there's intrinsic philosophical interest to the view?
2: Excellent question. Um, For a good time uh, in the 20th century Anglophone moral philosophy, there wasn't a whole lot of attention paid to Kant's moral philosophy. That's been a more recent development, the last few decades anyway. And I think it's been very salutary, and I hope it continues, because Kant, in a way that I've been sort of bringing out to a certain extent in my earlier remarks, Kant is a philosopher who conceives of reason as a capacity of knowledge, and what he is doing in developing an account of the practical use of reason and interpreting morality as having a basis in practical reason is really interpreting our moral thinking as cognitive or a kind of knowledge. He would call it knowledge of the good or of what we ought to do, as opposed to knowledge of the real or the actual knowledge of nature, which he thinks of as theoretical knowledge, not practical. And this knowledge is rational knowledge, but distinctive in certain ways that I've been trying to bring out earlier when I spoke of the way in which the two kinds of universality coincide. But in any case, What I think is really helpful in thinking of morality in terms of a principle which has its source in a capacity we have to know, to know the good in this case, is that it brings philosophical reflection upon morality more closely in touch with the way we ordinarily think about our obligations in the first instance. I mean, our ordinary thinking is just run through with the assumption, usually tacit, that we know how we ought to act. There may be difficult cases that we encounter where we're not sure what the right thing to do is, and of course philosophy classes are full of examples where it's really a head scratcher to know what the right answer is about what to do, and philosophers are drawn to the difficult cases, and that can kind of feed a sort of skepticism and help us come to um, doubt whether we actually do have any knowledge of the good or what we ought to do. but. If you go back to the way we ordinarily think about things when we're just on the street acting, making decisions about what to do, we suppose through and through that we have knowledge of how we ought to act, at least in the normal range of cases. We suppose, you know, we'll say things like, you know, I know I should help this person, although it's not convenient for me to do so. Or if someone's kind of giving us a hard time, browbeating us or something, we might, you know, reply to them by saying, Look, I know right from wrong. You don't need to tell me how to live my life. That'll just come out of our mouths. We say we know. I know right from wrong. So it's in our ordinary thinking. It's there. It's very robust. It's very powerful. But it tends to fall out of view when we start to put our philosophers' hats on and and reflect about morality. It's not as though this has not been noticed, but it's, um, I think, there's a lot of skepticism about, because of moral conflict, about whether we can have knowledge of the good or how to order our lives and that has a cost of leaving us not well I think positioned to interpret moral thinking in a way that's in line with the way we on the ground think of it so Kant is really valuable I think in bringing that bringing us account of moral obligation that that has those roots in our ordinary thought. Stephen Engstrom thanks so much for joining us. Great pleasure.
0: If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at at elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at lucian, that's L U C I A N, lucian.uchicago.edu slash blogs slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening.